Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, June 22nd. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and I'm joined today, of course, by the one, the only, certified financial planner, Mr. South Carolina, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything? Good. I chose to be in the office with good internet today, so hopefully you guys will be able to see me the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit of a better connection there, but you know, hey, it's a freaky time. We're all trying to just make it work however we can. Uh, so on today's financial show, we're actually going to look at why Simon's Property Group, a company that we talk a pretty good bit here about on the show, why Simon's might be wanting to buy J.C. Penney. Uh, Matt, you published another interesting poll on Twitter recently that I think we could dig into just uh, you know, for some more investable ideas. Of course, we'll have one to watch for you uh, for the coming week, but we're going to kick off today's show. Uh, Matt, we're going to talk about an article that you recently wrote titled, Here's What History Says About Investing in Recessions. And for those of you who may not know, we actually did enter a recession in February. I mean, that's been, that's been confirmed, right, Matt? Right. We're definitely in a recession and recessions are kind of scary for a lot of people to invest in. And you usually don't know you're in a recession until a few months afterwards when you see when you see <laughs> yeah. the GDP numbers, because that's how it's defined. It's defined as yeah. um, technically we won't know for a little while longer, but we're we pretty much know we're in a recession. It's technically defined as two two consecutive quarters of declining GDP growth. So obviously you don't officially know that until you're two quarters in and you can verify that that's what happened. Yeah, but it, it's pretty clear that we started a recession in February. Yeah, and I feel like I mean we've been talking for a little while about this. I mean, it, it really felt like, given the given the scope of uh, of, of the impact that, that COVID nineteen has had, I mean globally speaking. I mean, when you shut down economies, countries' economies. I mean, I mean, I, I would think a recession is almost unavoidable, no matter how long or how short that shutdown is. I mean, it puts everything on hold, and uh, you know, so we've we've certainly seen, you know, a lot of pain out there. And I don't think we're even really done with that yet. But you know, what I, I do want to look, I want to take a look at this article that you wrote because it, the one thing I liked about it, you know, you you go back. To past recessions, you take a look at some of the recessions that have occurred, you know, in our lifetime, and, and you talk a little bit about kind of what got us there, what investors were doing at the time, to perhaps some lessons that we can learn uh, coming out of recessions like that. I mean, this is what it's all about: is you go through these types of, of situations, and they teach you, right? I mean, I had never been through um, a, a bear market that that happened that quickly. I mean, I've never been through. Uh, a bear market that was, uh, you know, something that was caused by a pandemic. So, I, you know, I, I think that most people probably, you know, didn't really, I think most people probably underestimated the impact of this thing. But going forward, given what we've seen, I guarantee you, I won't be underestimating any impacts going forward. I mean, now this is another lesson that we've learned that I think can make us a better uh, investor. And, and so let's take a look at some of these recessions that you were talking about in the article. In, 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 t- Talk about some of the mistakes, some of the things that we learned coming out of these. And we'll start with the 1990 to 91 recession that you had there in the article first. Sure. Well, I, I, I did a little dive into the last three recessions. The 1990-91 recession was the, the first one. Then we had the 2001 recession that followed the dot-com crash. 
and then the Great Recession about a decade ago. So the first thing I would want to say is, and you kind of made this point for me already, is that the word unprecedented <laughs> gets thrown around a lot in every recession. It's not unique to this one. You hear that this recession is being caused yeah. by a pandemic. That's never happened before. It's you know quickest bear market in history, things like that. If you look at all three of these recessions, each one of them is very different in terms of how the stock market behaved during the recession. If you look in the yeah. 1990 to 91 recession, I'd actually call that one the most textbook recession that I've, I've seen. Um, you see the stock market, I mean, looking at the chart, um, the, the, the market peaks, it goes down, it stays down for about four or five months, and then it slowly starts to build back up. Um, this just kind of followed eight years of really good economic growth. There wasn't any particular event like, you know, the 9-11 attacks or a, a financial crisis or or a global pandemic. There wasn't a giant catalyst. Um, this was yeah. just more, uh, and, and that's probably why you saw more straightforward behavior in the stock market, because it was just kind of more of a slowdown after a long period of economic expansion. Um Going yeah. into the 2001 recession, it was a little bit different because there were two separate events that that led to that. Um, as we know, the dot-com bubble in the late 90s came to an end abruptly in around 2000. So you see the market kind of dip down then, then it kind of quickly recovers to its you know pre-recession levels and then starts to go down again. And then the September 11th attacks happened in 2001, and it was another leg down. It led to a, pro- led to a more prolonged recession than than you otherwise would have had. Um, so that was kind of a double dip recession, as they call it in, um, in economics. Yeah. Um, so, and then the Great Recession, which they call it great because not only was it very deep, but it was very long. Um, this is the one that listeners and you and me probably remember the best out of the three. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was invested during the Great Recession. I'm pretty sure you were as well. Yeah, I was, and I actually was working at Bank of America at the time as a loan officer, and and I remember vividly um, thinking that, man, that, you know, we were giving out like getting a loan was the easiest thing in the world, and valuations were sky high. I mean, you could just walk into a bank and like have people throw money at you for pretty much anything, and it just really started to seem like this just doesn't seem sustainable. This doesn't seem like it's going to work. And, and I mean, you know, in, in hindsight, obviously there were a lot of problems there, but but it was very interesting. Even at the time, it just felt like it was just too easy to get money. And, and the, the <laughs> unbridled enthusiasm was something I haven't seen since, I don't think. Well, I, I could tell you a personal story of how eager they were to give away money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> short, shortly after I graduated college, for the next year or two, I was a restaurant manager. I, I hadn't really started my my career yet. Um, I was making roughly $35,000 a year, and I got approved for a $350,000 loan for investment properties with with, wow. a, with a credit score in the low 600s at the time. Whew, so man. I, thankfully, well, there you go. I mean, thankfully, I didn't use it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't end up taking out one of those you know predatory loans, but a lot of people did. Yep. Um, and, yep and they did. You're right. And, and we saw how that – yeah, I mean, I, I knew – a. I, like I said, I was a restaurant manager. I knew a, one of my one of my servers owned three investment properties at one point. Um, you know, a twenty three year old didn't really have you know put zero down on all three of them and ended up all three of them getting foreclosed when when all Cowley. when it all went poorly. Um, so 
there, there was a lot of economic pain that happened as a result of this the subprime mortgage lending. And it was really a double-dip recession um, when you look at the chart. It, I mean, the the majority of the market's fall happened initially. Um, I think the, what was it, the Bear Stearns uh, collapse was the biggest catalyst initially. Um, yeah. when, when we that, That's what really made us think, okay, this is real. Um, so you, when Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers collapsed, you saw the market go down, down, down. Then in about September 2008, you got that big bailout, which was the biggest bailout in history until – the COVID pandemic. Um, and then, so the market rebounded a little bit after that said, okay, the government's putting some money in. And then it looked like that might not be enough. And um, the stock market proceeded to, you know, fall off a cliff again, didn't reach its low until March of 09. Um, and it, and it lasted a long time. It took years until we got new highs again in the stock market. I want to say 2015, 2016, somewhere around there before we, we yeah. took out the great, the pre great recession highs. So that's a long, drawn-out example of a recession and its effect on the stock market especially. Um, so the point is all these recessions are different. But as an investor, if you invest the right way, you don't really have to care about what the stock market's doing during these recessions. Um, so kind of the key takeaway of the article was, you're well, one, you're, you're never going to invest exactly at the bottom. That's, True. Something, you should, that's yeah. something you should get out of your head. If, well, and that's you know I always I refer to that lesson often that my my father taught me that like when I was really young he said listen son understand you'll never buy at the bottom and you'll never sell at the top so just get used to that now and then invest accordingly because you know if you're if you're looking at, at investing in these businesses and holding that sort of indefinite timeline the longer you hold those stocks really the less that matters you know I mean the less quibbling over a couple of dollars really matters. Right. So what I did was I took two parts, two points in each of these three recessions. I looked what happened if you would have invested at the worst possible time, meaning at the stock market's highest point during those recessions, and what would happen if you invested at the best possible time, meaning you timed the low exactly, which we know wouldn't really happen. But so the yeah. takeaway in the in the Great Recession, which was the most recent of the three. If you had invested at the worst possible time, you would still have an 8.4% annualized return to date. That's pretty solid. That's investing at the worst time, meaning the highest point of the market during that during the 2007 to 2009 time period. If you invested yeah. at the best possible time, you would have gotten more than double that. So that's a big difference. But remember, this was just a decade ago. If you go all the way back to that 1990 to 91 recession, the difference between the worst possible time and the best possible time to invest during that recession was less than one percentage point. If you picked, oh, a, wow. even if you did the worst job of market timing you could possibly do, you would have gotten a nine point eight percent annualized return for the past thirty years. That was that's if you timed it the worst possible way possible. So, just to put that into into perspective, this means if you would have put say $10,000 in the market 30 years ago, you'd be sitting on, hold on, let me do the math real quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, doing the math real quick, you'd be sitting on about $150,000 today. No, um, and that's that. And that's if you timed it as bad as you possibly could. So the takeaway yeah. is the best way to invest in recessions is to just stick to the plan. Invest a little bit at a time, focus on high quality companies, and don't worry about market timing, which is the biggest error I see everybody trying to make. Um, people people say things like, well, I I think this one's going to go down a few more points before I want to jump in, or 
I bought American Airlines last week. It went up by two points. Should I sell now? now yep. the, the answer is, do you think it's a quality company? If you think it's a quality company, you should probably buy more and, and just hold on for the next 30 years. But uh, I mean, it's the, the point is, don't worry too much about the, the, the timing of things. Look at a recession as a time to buy quality stocks at a discount. Yes, but don't try to time the day-to-day moves of the market. That's a losing battle. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, we have this discussion, I think, in in all of our services at one point or another, and and you know, folks talking about what you know, what kind of a plan would you enact in the case of a recession? And and you know, I keep coming back with the same answers, like. Well, ultimately, we go into a recession. I mean, I'm not looking to sell anything in that time because, in theory, if I have a portfolio of companies that I really like, I mean, yeah, a recession might be a short-term headwind or a drag on the performance of that portfolio, but I still like those businesses. And so, then trying to sell them, you know, at at, at an appropriate time to be able to then buy them back cheaper. I mean, that that you just yeah, there are a lot of ifs that have to uh, have to be satisfied there. So it becomes very very difficult to do that on a sustainable basis. And so yeah, it, it, the longer that you can extend your timeline, the less you have to worry about getting that timing right. I mean, you're going to buy some at the top, you're going to buy some at the bottom. But you know what? I mean, we we say it all the time, you know, adding to your winners is one of the fun is one of the most enjoyable things you can do as an investor. I mean, we've said it before, but I mean, a stock that's doing well is typically, you know, indication an indication of a business that's performing well. And if that business is performing well, well, why wouldn't you want to own more of it? Uh, so yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, getting into a recession, the timing, the timing part is probably something a little bit people get a little bit worked up over. But I mean, clearly we're seeing through the numbers here that you've that you've published in the article. I mean, it, it's not that big of a deal, and the longer you stretch that timeline out, the, even less of a big deal. Right. So it's you're going to do fine over the long term, no matter when you invest, as long as you're focusing on high quality companies or even ETFs or mutual funds or things like that. But over the short run, you really can't obsess over the timing. And this is where people tend to get go wrong. I mean, your, your emotions kind of work against you at that point. Your, your, your instinct is to you know, panic and sell when things are going down before the, anything yeah. gets any worse. And when you mm-hmm. see everybody throwing their money into speculative stocks, like, I mean, Hertz was a big example the other week. Um, there have been a few, you know, the airlines, the cruise stocks. When you see all your friends saying these are so cheap and throwing all their money in, it's your instinct to throw your money in as well. Whereas yeah. you got to ignore that kind of timing mentality of this is cheap now, this is not cheap now, this is a good time for this one, but I'm going to wait on this one. It's you know, focus on the quality first, and then then worry about when you're going to buy. Yeah, and I mean to that point, you know, we're we're at a we're at a point now where clearly we're trying to reopen states and in the country in general um which has certainly freed up uh you know consumer behavior at least you know to to the extent that that it was before um and and of course now we're seeing you know case case numbers go up right and so then you wonder if this continues and we see these case cases continue to rise it becomes an issue at least in certain locations or hotspots like they talk about so on the one hand, it's probably pretty reasonable to expect that there may be some uh, shutdowns here and there, depending on on you know hotspots. But but it also doesn't seem like we should expect the entire country to be shut down again from this. And so then, 
how does the market behave there? I mean, that's, that's another thing where you're trying to figure that out. It's very difficult to read. It's very difficult to figure out how might the country or how might the markets behave if we shut down part of the country, but not all of the country. And, and you know, surely the market's been performing fairly well in the face of, you know, a time where we feel like maybe it shouldn't be, maybe it shouldn't have recovered as quickly as it did, but, but maybe that's telling us something. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I personally don't foresee any widespread shutdowns. If, if anything, I mean, I live in a place that right now, if anywhere should, shut down again it's probably here uh, yeah i'm, I'm yeah. in one of those states where this the the cases are you know spiking to record highs every day but you know we got to get our fourth of july on down here uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah so and our governor's come out and said you know, we're not shutting anything down um, yeah. so I, I i don't i don't think it's going to be a big shutdown um by by the way, the the biggest spike of infections down here there's been something like a 900 percent rise in the 20 something population um, wow, getting infected. So it's it's the young people who are going out and not social distancing and yeah. and crowding in bars and things like that. It's not a a big spike among the older generations. They're they're doing a good job of protecting the vulnerable, but the, those numbers sure are scary. And I can see why the market's kind of on edge right now. Yeah, it it is scary, and you know this is ultimately something we're all kind of dealing with the same thing and. Um, you know, there are simple things that we can do to try to mitigate the spread and, and, you know, by the same token, I mean, we, you know, everything's shut down. I think that sort of gives you an indication of what behavior will be like when you open back up. There's a lot of pent up, uh, demand, you know, behavior. People want to get out, go do stuff, buy stuff, you know, socialize and whatnot. So, I mean, you go back to a shutdown, well, then that's going to just, you know, send everybody back to that same sort of mentality. And then, you know, it happens all over again. So it, it really, I mean, it all just boils down to um, ultimately some form of treatment or vaccine, which is still going to be a ways away. But, uh, you know, here we, I tend to agree. I, I have a hard time seeing a shutdown, uh, you know, on, on the scale of an entire country here. Because, I mean, I, I just, yeah, it seems like maybe the cost there is a bit more than, than most even anticipated. Uh, and we're seeing that through some of the behavior now. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I think we've all kept investing through this period. I mean, I when when we were in that bear market, you know, it was very short-lived, of course. But, I mean, I was able to at least buy some stocks. I was able to build a position in Adobe. I was able to start a position in Starbucks. Um, so, you know, I took advantage of buying. I think when I, you know, when you see these recessionary conditions, I mean, it, I'm not looking to sell, right? I and mean, that's just generally speaking you know, if you're in that grow your wealth mode, if you're still trying to grow your wealth and you're not worried about the protect your wealth uh, mode where you might be, uh, you know, in, in closer to retirement, I mean, you want to be a net buyer of stocks. You don't want to be a, you don't want to be a seller. You want to be buying and, and, uh, and, you know, extending that timeline as far as you can extend it because, uh, you know, these things happen. They're difficult to predict and it's, it's furthermore, it's difficult to predict exactly how the market will react. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. And, um, is it t- the one statistic on timing that I, that I always mention? Um, there's, there's a survey done every year about long-term investing returns. Um, you know, we all know that the average, uh, the S and P 500, achieves you know a nine to ten percent annualized return over time, depending on the exact period of decades you're looking at. Right. The average equity investor achieves a return of about half of that. I think it was five point four percent or so in the most recent year over the oh, over wow. the last thirty year period. Huh. And the primary reason cited is overtrading. Ah, well, that makes sense. So, it, I mean, that makes sense. It's, it, and it's what I was saying before with how our emotions get the best of us. And um, I, I was asked also why 
I'm always coming down on the day trading crowd in in this current <laughs> pen, uh, which which I mean the the timing the market thing and day trading go hand in hand. So it's worth yeah. it's worth mentioning. Um, it the, is one big thing that the day trading crowd misses is that the majority of market moves, especially upside market moves, happen after hours. Um, so yeah. you know, you're missing every earnings move if you're a day trader. Basically. Uh, you're, the, I mean, when you look at a chart of, like, let's say, Square, which is, you know, just hit a brand new high today, one of our favorite stocks. Hey, now. The biggest moves in Square generally happen when it releases its earnings reports. Yeah. Which happen after hours. By, whole, by being a long-term investor in Square, I've gotten the benefit of every one of those good earnings reports because I'm holding the stock. Yep. If you're a day trader yeah. and closing in and out of positions, you miss all of those big upside moves, which if you think something's a good business, you're betting that it's going to have more good earnings reports than bad over time, it's fair to say. You would figure. And you would by, figure. by being a day trader, you miss all of these after-hours moves that over time have a big upward bias. So that's yeah, the- and you know another thing I was thinking of too is that in in regard to earnings reports, I mean sometimes it's it's a flip of a coin as to how the market is actually going to react. I mean you can have a good business that you know files a good earnings report, beats expectations, everything looks great, and the stock sells off to the tune of ten or fifteen percent the next day when it looked like everything was great. And and maybe, you know, maybe that sell off is due to something involving margins or forward guidance or something. But, you know, so it's it's also it's it's not a given that if the company files a good report, then the market's going to receive it well. I mean that, that is a bit of a coin flip sometimes. And I've I've seen it enough to know that if I tried to day trade around that stuff, it would drive me crazy. Um so I mean it's just, you know, yet one more thing to keep in mind is is that you know, sometimes the market's reaction doesn't necessarily seem so rational, but you know, there's not much we can do about that. And, and if you take that longer-term approach, then you really don't have to worry about it. You can you can trade up, just ignore it because you know you still own a business that you like. Right, and that's the, that's the point. If you own bus- if you're buying businesses that you like, you want those the news moves um, to work in your favor over time. And and if you're yeah. moving in and out, you you never know when. Um, I mean, the real estate sector, one of my favorites right now. These companies are constantly issuing updates about how COVID is affecting their business, and they're not putting them out in the middle of the day. They're putting them out at night. So if yep. I believe in one of my real estate stocks long term, I want those updates to have an effect on my investment over time. I don't want to miss them because I'm trying to trade and time the market and things like that. So yep. it, it's it's really a you know you don't want to miss these things. If you miss the best days of the market, you're going to lose long term. It's going to impact your returns significantly. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick look here at another newsworthy item that we were talking about earlier. Uh, Simon Property Group has thrown their name in the hat as a possible suitor to J.C. Penney. And Matt, on the surface, to me, this seems like maybe not the wisest investment, given what we've seen from J.C. Penney over the last several years. But I mean, listen, this is Simon Property Group, man. It's clearly a, a team of folks that know know what they're doing. So so what's the rationale here? Why might Simon be interested in purchasing JCPenney? Right. Well, this wouldn't be unprecedented for Simon. They, they do buy retail brands out of bankruptcy from time to time. Aeropostale is one of them. I always get told I'm saying that wrong. Uh, <laughs> and Forever 21 is the most recent example. They were part of a group that included Brookfield that that bought Forever 21 out of bankruptcy. But I could see yep. how that would be different from JCPenney. Those are popular brands still. They have a lot of, you know, you know, it's a substantial brand power that that Simon's getting for that. 
JC Penny is really not. When I hear JC Penny, I think that's where my grandma used to take me when I was little. <laughs> I mean, if we're being honest, you probably me have a, you probably have a similar <laughs> mentality about it. Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. So the thing that everyone's missing with the JC Penny is that they own most of their real estate, including mm. the real estate that they operate in that's attached to Simon Malls. So okay, JC Penny starts to make sense. JC Penny either owns or ground leases, meaning that they own the physical building of most of the stores. If you look at the actual amount of rent Simon collects from its tenants, um, when you see a company like Gap, that's their biggest tenant. It's something to the, in the four percent ballpark. Four percent of their rent comes from Gap. When you see like a JC Penny or a Sears or Macy's, it's like 0.1% because they don't get a lot of rental income from these anchor tenants because they own their property. So it's more of a real estate play. I could see we, we've talked about Serotage growth properties a few times on the show before. Yeah. That was the REIT that was created specifically to buy a bunch of Sears properties and redevelop them. So I could see Simon wanting to do this with the JC pennies that are already attached to their mall. So this is a way to build out, you know, entertainment complexes, um, office spaces, hotels at a cheaper cost than adding on completely from scratch. They're acquiring yeah. all this JC penny real estate. And not only that, but they don't want all JC penny stores to just go vacant right away. Yeah. That's bad for business. They're not getting a lot of rental income from JC Penny, but it's an eyesore in a mall to just see a giant vacant department store. That, oh yeah. That's not, you know, it's not being done, not being redeveloped, not being used for anything. So one, it prevents them from getting, you know, three hundred or something giant holes in their mall where JC Penney's used to be. <laughs> um, but it also gives them a ton of real estate to um, I mean, they Simon views the redevelopment of Sears properties as one of their biggest opportunities. That's where they're putting these hotels, their their new restaurants, their, their you know the things that are bringing foot traffic into their mall. So if they not only you know all of a sudden had these vacant J.C. Penney stores, but now own the real estate as well, that creates a ton of big opportunities, and and it's real estate that they would be buying for you know fire sale price at this point. Yeah. So I yeah, think it's more that's... of a real estate play. Um, I I don't think they want the J.C. Penney brand. I don't no. really think they care about the brand. I think it's definitely I can't a, imagine, yeah. It's definitely a real estate play. J, I mean and remember JC Penney's original plan to emerge from bankruptcy was to to split off into a, a real estate investment trust and an operating company. So yep. there's a lot of real estate there and you'd be surprised how much real estate these companies like JC Penney's and Macy's and for you formerly Sears, you know, they own a big real estate portfolios that are that are valuable and these companies can acquire for pennies on the dollar right now. Well, that definitely makes sense. That certainly clears it up. Uh, Matt, earlier you posted a poll on Twitter uh, from a few days ago, and you said, which of these early 2020 investments will end up producing the best returns in 10 years? What do you think your best COVID-era investment will be? And you gave, uh, you gave voters four choices. Pinterest at $16.70 per share, iRobot at $35 per share, Occidental at $13.50 per share, and Ryman Hospitality at $17 per share. And so the voting is over, Matt. In, in Pinterest here, one just running away. It's almost 65% of the vote um, out of almost 300 votes. I mean, there, there was clearly a, a, you know, a bias here towards Pinterest. Now, I know you have a different feeling on the matter, though. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I obviously think all four of them are going to do well. Those are stocks that I bought and the prices that I paid for them, give or take a few gotcha. cents. 
So I, I like Pinterest, but I, for one, iRobot, I'm surprised. That was the number two. I think it got about 20% of the vote. Yeah. Um, iRobot has already more than doubled off of that level. So they have oh, the wow. biggest head start out of the four, which so I, <laughs> I was surprised they didn't do that much better. And oh, man. I mean, I and I'm not surprised that Occidental was dead last. Uh, a lot of people are really negative on oil stocks right now, even the ones that Warren Buffett owns, like Occidental. Yeah, um, I can see that. And even even though I got it at a at a you know a very low price, a lot of people think you know all oil stocks are going to zero right now. <laughs> um, Ryman was my biggest surprise. I think it got eight percent of the vote. About uh, that, yep. I bought Ryman, at, and that's Ryman at $17. It's roughly double that already. And I think Ryman's just – that was a $90 stock before the pandemic. The conference – they're a conference-based hotel. I don't think conferences are going anywhere long term. No, I don't think um, so. I, I, I could see that being a $100 stock within a few years. Um, apparently, a lot of people disagreed with me. Um, well – you know what they say, Matt? The market is just one big disagreement, and everybody thinks they're right. You know, like I said, I think uh, all of them are going to produce great returns over time. That's why I bought them. But yeah. I mean, I mean, Ryman was the one I was most excited to click the buy button with that price on my screen. Yeah, and I bet I bet you're right. I bet you maybe it's just there's there's an unfamiliarity uh, factor that comes into play there, and that's true. It's not really a household name like Pinterest. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think most people when they see the two, they probably you know it's easier to see Pinterest and understand what that's all about versus a rhyme and hospitality where you're really trying to piece together this real estate investment trust and exactly how you know their pieces all fit together. So, but I, I mean, hey, listen, you know, I mean, I, I know that you you like those REITs. Ryman certainly is one that uh, has a lot of a lot of value there to unlock, and it sounds like you're a big fan of it as well. So even though the majority there was leaning towards Pinterest. You're sticking with your guns and going with Ryman, huh? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm keeping all four of them, but I, right. I, I could see. I think Ryman's going to be the best. I mean, and, and it's you know going to be a double double digit dividend payer as soon as it reinstates its dividend. Um, so well, we're just we're just going to have to keep track of it, and we'll we will. Uh, I'm going to retweet we'll revisit that in 10 years one. to see how that aged. <laughs> we'll revisit this one every once in a while, see how <laughs> things are going. <laughs> Well, Matt, before we wrap it up this week, let's go ahead and jump into one to watch. We're going to give our listeners here stocks that we're watching here for the coming week for some reason or another. What is your one to watch this week? Um, I'm going to go with one that I briefly mentioned earlier, uh, Seratage Growth Properties. Um, yeah. Ever since the the big highs that happened in the market, or the big rise in the market that happened last month, um, the, the reopening stocks, as they call them, have really been beaten down. And Seratage has been beaten down worse than most. Um, I think it's a great long-term redevelopment play, and I think the market's really mispricing it at, at this level. All right. Saratage, what's the ticker for that? SRG. SRG. All right. Well, I'm going to take a look at Nike later this week, ticker NKE. Nike's earnings are out on Thursday. And, you know, this is going to be really interesting because I want to see signs of, of the continued recovery in China. Remember that when they reported last, uh, when they reported in February, I mean, it, you know, it, it was a quarter that had done, they, they did okay. Revenues were up 5%, um, actually 7%, uh, you know, excluding currency effects. But, but they had just started to see the recovery taking place in China, whereas we were really just in the middle of, of uh, you know, what was a, a very difficult stretch here domestically. So I'm just going to be interested to see really their take on, you know, the situation on the ground in China versus the situation on the ground here, uh, how they're looking at 
the rest of this year. I'm sure that guidance is probably going to be something that remains, uh, you know, nebulous, nebulous as always. But, but you know, I mean, I, with a global company like this, and given this is a, you know, a, the pandemic is, a, is of a global nature, I mean, it'll be interesting to get their input um, on, on how things are looking outside of this domestic box that we live in here. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, we'll be looking to see that their digital, uh, you know, their investments in digital uh, are continuing to pay off. So that Nike earnings on Thursday. Uh, but, Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. I appreciate you jumping in here and, uh, you know, and teaching us a thing or two about recessions and real estate and whatnot. Of course. Glad the sound and internet held out in this cool little cubby I'm in right now. That's right. Well, remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can also drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to our man Austin Morgan for putting the pieces together for us each and every week. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.